Welcome to the Didache Divine Service. This is our, the last of the formal lessons on the Ten Commandments today, although we will be obviously always referring back and circling back and reviewing things that we have done. But we will be finishing up some material from Lesson 3 and particularly focusing on the rich young ruler, as he is known, in the reading from Mark chapter 10. But we begin with the hymn 581, uh, stanzas 1, 11, and 12. And what we're focusing on today is the law in general. What does it proclaim? What is its spiritual function? Namely, to show us our sin and to lead us to repentance and faith in Christ. And so that's contained, verses 1, 11, and 12 especially. Let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty and everlasting God, you despise nothing you have made, and forgive the sins of all who are penitent. Create in us new and contrite hearts, that lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, we may receive from you full pardon and forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Hymn 581, stanzas 111 and 12. These are the holy ten commandments God gave to us by Moses' hands when high on Sinai's mount he stood receiving them for our good and mercy, Lord. You have this law to see therein that you Now, in our review today, we will touch briefly on the Ninth and the Tenth Commandments, and then also the close of the commandments, the terms associated with each one. Remember the Ninth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And then the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And one of the things we highlighted in discussing the ninth and the 10th commandments was the idea that God wished to protect what? Do you remember? Ninth and 10th, God wished to protect what? You shall not covet. 
Uh-uh, you're thinking external things. Oh, see, see why we review? You shall not covet. In the ninth and the 10th commandments, you shall not covet. What does God wish to protect? Remember when the, under the fifth commandment, life. Sixth commandment, marriage. Seventh commandment, property. Eighth commandment, good name and reputation. Those are all external gifts, Polly. Okay, uh, the heart and the heart's affections to guard the heart against idolatry, mistrust, okay? And the affections that flow from the heart, what I love, what I desire, okay? So he wishes actually to protect the heart with the ninth and the 10th commandment. All sin emanates from the desires of the heart if they are covetous desires. So <clears throat> before anyone murders someone, he has coveted their position, life. He is full of vengeance and anger, and so he commits the, the act of murder. Before he steals, he covets the property of others, money, wealth, and so forth. Before he commits adultery, he covets another man's wife. So covetousness is the source of the external sins that the other commandments speak about. So, <clears throat> the heart is the seat of faith, the place of faith. And the heart is going to believe in something. The heart is always going to trust in something. God wants our heart to trust in him. And to believe and to know with confidence that what he gives, whether it's a lot or a little, is good. And then to use what we have been given for the benefit of others. Now, we also discussed in the ninth and the 10th commandments how here you've got two commandments on covetousness. I explained to you in the Old Testament among the Jews the ordering of what was called the 10 words. They didn't call it the 10 commandments, but the 10 words actually began with, I, the Lord your God, brought you out of the house of bondage. Okay? That's not for us. Now, he's brought us out of the house of bondage in terms of redeeming us from our sin, but that explains the difference in the ordering of the commandments. And so it is fitting that covetousness takes up two commandments because it is the fountain and source, covetousness, of all of our sin. We highlighted how the ninth commandment dealt with inanimate objects, especially house, and the tenth, uh, those relationships that where someone can return affection to us, okay? So you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Uh, ninth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Remember the explanations. Ninth commandment, we should fear and love God so that we do not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house. Scheming is in the heart and in the mind concocting a plan to obtain that which we covet, we desire but help and support and be of service to him in keeping what belongs to him. Under the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. The explanation says we should fear and love God so that we do not entice or force away our neighbor's wife, workers, or, an or animals, or turn them against, but urge them today to stay and do their duty. So again, in both of those explanations, whether it's scheming or enticing, you see how 
plans begin in the sinful heart and in the mind to achieve these things that one desires. All right, let's ask you just a couple of things. To use the law in ways that only appear right and lawful to accomplish your will. Do you know the expression? It was one of the terms we went over. A show of right. A show of right. That's correct. And what do you call the sinful condition or nature that is a part of every human being since Adam's fall? Original sin. Now that's known by other things too. Simply the flesh, the corruption of the flesh, original sin, the old Adam, okay? And under the close of the commandment, what do you call the demand of God's law that we give all honor and glory to him alone and the threat of God's law to punish all who transgress? The jealousy of God. The only jealousy that is not sinful because he knows what is best because he alone is God. So like a parent, we use that analogy, like a parent who gets angry if someone wants to hurt his child or if the child do some, does something against the parent's will that the parent knows will hurt that child, there is an anger there. That's a good way to think about the jealousy of God as well. Uh, God's act of subjecting the creation to decay as a consequence of man's sin, it results in the pain of childbirth, the toil, in the sweat of one's brow, in your work for daily bread, but also from this comes disease, earthquake, famine, pestilence, and so forth. What do we call that? The curse of the fall. And remember, this is God's act. A lot of people get confused about that. God cursed the creation on account of man's sin. So in yesterday's sermon, when I asked a series of questions, you know, how would you like to know these things? Well, God's word teaches us that God cursed the creation, and we have these problems in the world Yes, because of our sin, but he did that like a father who, in love, disciplines his children. If he doesn't discipline his children, then there's never any consequence for the bad stuff that they do. What do they become? Brats. Brats. Spoiled brats, exactly. So the things that we suffer are intended to strip us of self-reliance so that we might learn to rely upon Christ. Now, finally, in the close of the commandments, the catechism said, God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Now, if you let that sentence sink in, do you realize what it means? Every one of us, according to the law, is under what? According to the law. God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. So according to that, according to the law, we are all under judgment. Exactly. According to the law. So we can take no, no comfort, really. Oh, God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. It would be wonderful if we weren't sinners. But since we're sinful, 
the law is always accusing us. Those of you who wanted to know the Latin, remember lex law, semper, always accusat. It always accuses because we are sinful. So the punishment that the law demands in the close of the commandments has to fall upon Christ or we are all under the judgment of hell and condemnation. But he has taken the hell and the condemnation. Thanks be to God. Tom. They believe they're going to hell? Why? Because they of their sinful nature. Now, that's what we deserve, isn't it? It is. And, and what do you say to them? Believe in Christ. Believe in Christ because he, he said, I've met a lot of Roman Catholics who believe they're going to hell because of their sin. Well, that's what we deserve. So you say, Tom said, well, believe in Christ because he's taken your hell. And through his sacrifice upon the cross, you have forgiveness. You have life. You have salvation. Okay? Is that a doctrine in which that the Catholic Church teaches? Well, the Roman theology is filled with lots of works righteousness, that God loves me on the basis of what I do. He saves me on the basis of my works. And what that does is it takes the honor and glory away from Christ, A. It gives us no certainty, B. And it's false. We cannot rescue ourselves from our own sin. If it, what's, yes. Okay. So we're going to turn now to Mark chapter 10. I want to get into the reading uh, more quickly today because I have some other things that we are going to tidy up at the end, but Mark chapter 10, and we will read at first verses 17 through 22. Steve, do you need a Bible? Now don't forget your, your own Bibles or to grab one when you come in. So verses 17 through 22 of Mark chapter 10. Now, as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. Now, Jesus is still speaking. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these I have observed or kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he, that is the man, was sad at this word 
and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now let's go back to the beginning. I'm going to ask you a series of questions. These will be simple questions, and the answers of which will be drawn from the text. What did this man say, do, do and then say when he came to Jesus? He fell down on his knees, and he said, Good teacher, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, inheritance. In, an inheritance is normally received as a what? As a gift. An inheritance is normally not something for which you for which you work. And this is what causes some people to look at the things that other people's uh, children are inheriting and say, boy, that kid doesn't deserve that stuff. Okay? Inheritance is normally a gift. All right? Now, according to the man's question, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? What does he believe about the inheritance of eternal life? According to his question, Polly? He's got to do something. So he believes that the inheritance of eternal life is based on what he does. Okay? What is the first thing that Jesus focuses upon in reply to the man. The first thing. Why do you call me good? Jesus begins to answer the man's question by posing his own question. Why do you call me good? Does Jesus answer the question that he poses? In other words, does Jesus answer his own question? Yes. What does he say? Only God is good. No one is good but one. That is God. So if no one but God is good, let me repeat it so you clearly understand. If no one but God is good, then this man standing before him is what? Is not good. He's evil. You, you follow the logic? Jesus focuses on the man's question, good teacher, and how he addresses Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Do you realize what you are saying? There is only one who is good, which therefore means that man is not good. Does the man believe he is good, or at least good enough or hopes he is good enough to inherit eternal life? Yes. But according to Jesus, there is only one who is good. God. Now, of course, God is standing before this man. This man is sincere in asking the question. He really wants to know. 
But his faith is a faith in what? Himself and his own works. And he is called the rich young ruler because of another gospel, the rich young man, okay? Is he similar to the first reading we had at the beginning of Didache, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Yeah, in both cases, that rich man in the first parable trusted in his works, his accomplishments, the money he was able to accrue, Maybe he worked very, very hard. He was dressed in purple and fine linen. He fared sumptuously every day. But he had made a what out of his accomplishments, out of his money? A god, an idol. The same thing here. He comes to Jesus, not like the Pharisees who were filled with, you know, trying an attempt to ensnare Jesus. He comes sincerely. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus meets him right where he is, his understanding of what is good. And according to this understanding that Jesus gives, perfection. There's only one who is good, God, in whom there is no sin. Now, Larry, you had a question. Why doesn't Jesus think that he's good? Oh, Larry. Wait, wait, let, let me, let me, let me. Let me, let me, stop, stop, stop. Is Jesus God? Yes. Larry, is Jesus God? Yeah. Okay, no one is good but one that is God. You answered your own question. Well, I, know. I thought he was referring to the Father. Well, he is, and himself. There is only one God, Larry. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, I, I could say it like this, Larry. Jesus says to him, no one is good but one that is God, and you're looking at him. Okay. Because in Jesus, you see goodness. Because in Jesus, going back to the two tables of the law, what does the first table of the law summarize, proclaim? You shall what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's Jesus. He loves his Father that way. And love your neighbor as yourself or in place of yourself. Jesus does that in the sacrifice that he makes upon the cross. That's goodness, okay? So yeah, no one is good but one, that is God, and you're looking at him. Now, look what comes next. Does Jesus uh, wait for any further reply from the man? No, he is catechizing the man. No one is good but one, that is God. And then he goes right to the Ten Commandments. Do not, you know the commandments. And the man did. Jesus is speaking and he quotes, do not commit adultery. What commandment? See, these are easy questions. Six, do not murder. Five, do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. The nine and tenth, correct. Honor your father and your mother. The fourth. So he packages the second table of the law together around the fourth and the ninth and the tenth commandments. And he answered and said to him, oh, I guess I'm not as good as I thought I was. Is that what he says? Oh, I have to keep all those commandments, so I guess I've missed the mark. No, instead, how does he answer? All, teacher, all these I have observed, or all these I have kept from my youth. 
Now, what is your reaction to that statement? You know, honor your father and mother, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not defraud. All these I have kept from my youth, from little on. What is your reaction to that? He's a liar. He's a liar. Tom says he's humble, you're being sarcastic, right? So all of your, does anybody react differently? I mean, are you kidding me? As a little boy on up, you've never sassed your mom and dad, you have never disobedient, you never stuck out your tongue, Kathy, at your mother, when she told you to do something and she turned her back and you went, mmm, okay, come on. And of course, as we learned, as we learned in the previous reading, Jesus preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, whoever is angry is in danger of the judgment because of murder. Whoever lusts is guilty of adultery. Whoever obfuscates and doesn't say, let your yes be yes or your no, no, is transgressing. Well, then everyone is a sinner. Now, when the man... Polly, do you have a question? I do. Okay, go ahead. Why, why didn't Jesus ask him about the first table of the law? Ah, good question. Can you hold that in abeyance for a moment? Okay. Is the man... Does the man believe what he just told Jesus, all these things I have kept. Yes, he is sincere. True or false? False. Wait a minute. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me ask the true or false question. Okay? Now, you, the man's sincere, but he's, he's false, he's wrong. Yeah, okay, I get it. So is the man sincere? Yes, he's absolutely sincere. Now, here's the true or false question. Truth is whatever you sincerely believe. It's false. You can believe something with all your heart and you can be as sincere as the day is long. That doesn't make it true. What did this guy not believe? What did he not believe? Polly? He didn't understand that God demands perfection. Okay, you can say it that way. Um, that's, a, that's a typical Lutheran uh, statement in a way that I'm actually going to criticize it because I was taught that way too. And what I'm getting at is it, God demands perfection. Well, I'm 20% there. Well, I'm 80% there, but I can never be 100% there. And that actually, I have learned over the years in my study of Luther, that misses the mark entirely. Because it's not a matter of degree. It's a matter of are you or are you not righteous before God? Which gets to the more fundamental question which Jesus touched on at the very beginning when he said, no one is good. Just take it there. What did this man not believe? There you go. That man did not believe that he was a sinner. By my fault, by my own fault, by my almost grievous fault. In other words, there is nothing in me that is good. See, that's St. Paul. I know that in me that is in my flesh, I'm quoting Romans, I know that in me that is in my flesh there dwells no, no. 
no good thing. You see how he's not quite perfect, doesn't actually say it right. Because until we learn to believe that in me there dwells no good thing, I am a sinner who cannot save myself, we cannot really understand the gospel of what God has done. Because some think that, okay, I'm not perfect, and to bring me over the threshold, I need Jesus, and that's actually a part of Roman theology. So he does a little bit, you do the rest, and he helps bring you over the threshold. No, actually, from the Bible's point of view, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. It's not, there is none who is totally good, but a, no, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells zero, nada, no good thing. So what this guy did not believe is that he was a sinner. And until we believe this, you see, if we don't believe that about ourselves, then we are always going to be tempted to hold the sins of others against. Because I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not as bad as Steve Lewick here. And we know he's a more evil sinner than I am because he's got more gray in his beard than I do. But I must be a worse sinner because I have less hair than he does. So, okay, you know, so how do you slice that? No, until we learn to believe that I have no claim to righteousness by anything in me, we cannot really come to know what Christ has done for us. Okay? Do you see kind of the difference there, Polly? Yeah. Okay, now, where did my Bible go? Here it is. Now, how would you have engaged this man at this point who has just said he's kept all of these commandments under the second table of the law? I probably would have told him he was lying. <laughs> you probably would have told him he's lying. Okay, any other responses? Impossible. Impossible, okay. A little laughter. What? A little laughter. A little laughter, okay, maybe. Would you have attempted to argue with him on the basis of each commandment? Like, you mean to tell me you've never, you've never disobeyed your mother, ever? You mean to tell me you've never had an angry thought against anyone, ever? You mean to tell me you've never lied? Do you follow what I'm saying? Jesus does not do any of that. Instead, what is his reply? I'll give it to you. Jesus loved him. And said to him, one thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come. Take up the cross and follow me. There's Jesus' reply. Now, what, pardon me? Of who he is. Of, there, of who he is. The I am. The I am. Okay, now... You're getting to the point here, Steve. Jesus says, one thing you lack. Does that mean he really had kept all those commandments? He just lacked one thing? Is that what it means? No. It rather means, unless you have this one thing, you lack everything. You got that? Unless you have this one thing, you lack everything 
everything. What, what is this one thing? Polly? It's the first table of the law. Aha, uh -huh. well, it is the first table of the law. What is this one thing he lacks, though? Aha, Christ. Did you say that? Yes. Christ is the one. See, I asked it deliberately, what, instead of who. Now, how do we know it's who? Because he says, follow me. See, you will misread this passage if you think, when Jesus says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, if you think the one thing he lacked is he hadn't done enough philanthropic acts. You follow? In other words, if you want to be saved, then do more acts of charity. Okay, you got everything else met, you know, like Polly. He's almost perfect. If he does a little bit more charitable work, then he'll achieve perfection. That's not the point. Why is Jesus telling the man, let go of everything, sell it all, Give it to the poor. What is he calling the man to? Why is he saying that? When he says, let go of everything, sell it all. What's that? Repentance. Because what is this man trusting in? Him, 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 his works, his money, his possessions. This is the call to repentance. There's the first table of the law, Polly. See, he had made a God out of his treasures, out of his riches, out of his good works. This man is telling him, don't, tr Jesus is telling him, don't trust your good works. You follow? Don't trust your good works. Let go of all of it. Of all of it? But these are the things I've been basing my future on. Get rid of it. But, 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 but I like my money. Get rid of it. You made an idol out of it. But, but I think I'm a good person. In your flesh there dwells no good thing. You're a sinner. Let go of your works, your money, your possessions, your position, whatever it is, all of those things you are trusting and follow who? Me, he says. Follow me. The one thing he lacked was Christ. Now Tom or, and Larry, the only one who is perfect or use Jesus language. Good. I, like, I always like using Jesus' language. The only one who is good. Now, you're right. He's perfect. But let go of everything else. He calls him to repentance. Those were his gods. Trust me. Rely upon me. Take up your cross and follow me. And as a couple weeks ago in the sermon, on Sunday morning, part of our cross as Christians is this daily struggle with the same kind of self-righteous work righteousness that was in this young man. So God is always calling us away from reliance upon ourselves to reliance upon him. Remember our early terms under the first commandment, repentance, to be turned from reliance upon self to reliance upon Christ alone. And that's why the first, you know, the Reformation is October 31st when the 95 Theses were nailed. The first Theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of the Christian be one of repentance. That is to say, the turning away from self-reliance to reliance upon Jesus. Follow me. And we know that's the call to faith in Jesus 
as the only one who is good, the only one who is righteous because he died on the cross, because at the end of the Gospels, he says to the church, make disciples of all nations, followers of Jesus, follow me, by baptizing and catechizing them. So it's the call to repentance and faith in Christ. Tom. Well, why does he say take up the cross? What does this mean? Well, as Christians, we are joined to Christ who died upon the cross, okay, for our salvation, for our forgiveness. And when we feel our sin, honestly, we are actually feeling or experiencing something that Jesus went through in his death upon the cross. When we struggle to keep the law and to love God and to love the neighbor, we are feeling the sin that nailed him to the cross. Well, because only he in his death paid the price for sin and the result of that was life from death. Okay, what does the cross always mean? What, in, the, in, in history, if you were nailed to the cross, what did that always what's mean or result in? Your, do, your death. Your death. So when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, finally then, we must die to self. What had to die in this man? His reliance upon himself, his self-righteousness, his pride. He had to become a beggar before God. So crucifixion, taking up the cross and following Jesus is always about dying to self, dying to self-reliance, which is what repentance is, to be turned away from self and one's own presumed good works, which, according to Jesus, aren't good at all, to reliance upon Christ, who alone is righteous. Follow? Notice how Jesus uses the law. Isn't this fantastic? He agrees with me. No, it's the other way around. I agree with him. So what we've been saying about the law and what it does and what it demands and how the law has the spiritual function to strip us of self-reliance, we see here in Jesus. And he hits the mark. Notice, in his conversation with this man, what is even when he uses the law, what is motivating Jesus? Love. love. He looked at the man and he loved him. And this is so very important. So when he shows the man his sin, there's nothing in him that is good. He's a sinner. Still, Jesus loves him and wants to save him. And where is that salvation found? In Jesus. Follow me. Okay? So it's really a lovely account, except what happens. He goes away sad. And then Jesus runs after him. I really didn't mean it. You're, you're not that sinful. Does Jesus do that? No. no. This is a very comforting thing because Jesus as a preacher and a catechist, was there any better preacher? Was there any better catechist than Jesus? No, but still people went away sad. 
but he planted the word in him. Now, most commentators, and myself included, believe that this young man was Mark himself who wrote the gospel. Mark himself who, in the same gospel, is that young man with the linen garment who snuck into the Garden of Gethsemane, and when Jesus was arrested and the soldiers grabbed after this young man, they pulled off his linen clothes and he went away naked. A great picture of what had to happen to him. Most believe, myself included, that it was the upper room of Mark's parents that Jesus and the disciples met for the Passover and for the Lord's Supper to be instituted. And so he, he, he was sincere. He'd been following Jesus, but he grew up in a very works-righteous uh, you know, milieu in uh, the Jewish life of Jerusalem and so forth. And so he comes to Jesus. He'd been drawn to Jesus by Jesus' preaching, but he's conflicted between reliance upon himself and his money, the things he covets, and relying upon this Savior whom he did recognize, spoke words of comfort and offered salvation. There's conflict. Now, let's just highlight a couple of more passages before uh, moving on. Verse 23, following this scene, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Why? That riches are their God. It's, boy, it's hard to let go of them. You know, as much as we appreciate, and we've got great wealth in this country, you know, uh, the standard of living of the poorest is greater than the standard of living of many noblemen and princes down through the centuries before us. Maybe what we need most is to be stripped of such things because it's so easily they become our God. Now the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, there you see the love for them, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How easy is it for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? Answer, simply, impossible. And they were astonished beyond measure, blown away, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? Now, part of the disciples' astonishment is rooted in the fact that most of us don't really realize especially if you come out of the uh, 60s and 70s generation like Cherie over there, who think of Jesus and the disciples as flower children, you know, walked around in these robes, love, peace, joy. Okay. The reason why they're astonished beyond measure and then say who can be saved is because they themselves were rich. Peter and Andrew, James and John were well-to-do fishermen. They had a fishing business there in 
Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, archaeologists have discovered uh, in Bethsaida, I believe it's Bethsaida or Capernaum, forget which one, but the house of Peter is the, uh, was discovered, and it's the largest one in the whole community. Large enough because he made money. Besides, how else could these how else could these men go off with Jesus for three years? So what he's identified that the disciples, a lot of them had money, just like Father Abraham, when he was called to faith, why should I leave my homeland? I've got it pretty well here. It's amazing how many of those people in the Old Testament who were called to follow the Lord, as well as the apostles in the New Testament, had lots of pocket change. Matthew himself was a tax collector. He was a Jew, but he was, he was living pretty high on the hog as a tax collector. Okay? We know that Judas Iscariot, now he didn't, he didn't repent, but we know that he was a thief. The Apostle John says so in his gospel. It was Judas Iscariot who kept the money box for the disciples for out those three years, and he helped himself. He was the first preacher that dipped into the collection plate, except he never got to preach. Okay? So, no wonder the disciples are astonished beyond measure. Now, notice what Jesus says. Verse 27, Jesus looking at them. What is that parallel to, in verse 27, in the earlier scene with the rich young man? Verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack. Now here, verse 27, Jesus looking at them. Now the word love is not there, but, it's, but it's, it's in there. And he said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Now that's far enough for us in this reading. I want you to see the miracle of repentance is just that, a miracle. The miracle of faith is just that, a miracle. How does it happen? It happens from God's word from outside of ourselves in the form of the law which accuses and the gospel which offers salvation as a gift is heard and received. So if you in, like in this study today even, if you have the sense of, Aha, yeah, I see that now. I see this man's self-righteousness. If you, hearing these words, say, yeah, I see this. There is no one good that includes myself. Only God is good, and that goodness is found in Jesus. If you're hearing in this word, you know, follow me, Jesus called, trust me. I am your God and I am your Savior. I am your salvation. Then you're experiencing exactly what is impossible for us by our own you know, reason. It's God's word. It's why we emphasize the importance of God's word to create faith, to give us the gift of salvation, and then to preserve us in that faith. Okay? All right, before we leave this, any further questions on this narrative? So 
It's one of my favorite narratives in the Gospels for, um, for uh, teaching the law and the spiritual use of the law. Wally? Well, yeah, uh, he, he, got, he was attracted to Jesus, what he was preaching was teaching, but until the miracle of faith created in him, he, he was not going to get it right. And knowing that uh, with walk with him, follow me. Cross, well, there's no way because he's not, he doesn't meet the requirements, then he could never be a disciple. Yes, one wonders, it's true. One wonders, those people who heard Jesus talk about, take up your cross and follow me, what is he talking about? You know, we always read it after the fact. But when he was actually speaking, he hadn't yet gone to the cross. Okay? And so a lot of these things become more clearly in focus after the fact. Polly? If it takes such careful exegesis for us to understand what's really going on here. Yeah. How were they supposed to understand those who heard Jesus? Well, this goes back to what Jesus just said. With men, it is impossible, but not with God. And if you're saying to yourself, I would not have understood this or come to realize this without a teacher, then you are also, you are also touching upon what the scriptures themselves teach. How shall they hear without a preacher? So again, we need preachers and teachers outside of ourselves. We live in a world today in the religious climate where you can be your own spiritual teacher. And that's a lie. It's like, it's like a child being born. I don't need my mommy. I don't need my daddy. Now, actually, they start to say that at a very early age. <laughs> but, but that is as much a lie as the idea that you don't need a preacher. Who was? John, did you have? No, OK. I was just going to say Jesus spoke in parables, which was a difficult, not impossible to understand, unless you had the Holy Spirit. That's correct. And he spoke in parables, in fact, they asked him, the disciples, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus basically says, so people don't understand what I'm saying. Which is counterintuitive for us. Because the key to understanding the scriptures is Christ. The key to understanding the scriptures is the grace of God in Jesus. Susan, last word and then we're going to move on. That's correct. 
Right. Now, what I'd like you to do right now is turn in Lutheran Catechesis to page 65. And we have not but just mentioned it in the previous weeks. And I, I wanted to do a little more than just mention it today. Under each of the Ten Commandments, uh, we've had these subtitles, How Christians Should Be Taught to Confess from Whatever Commandment We're Studying. And I, I want you to, you know, realize this, pay attention to this. You know, every Sunday in the Divine Service, after the opening hymn and the invocation, there's a confession of sins. And so these questions teach us how to use the commandments to reflect not upon how good we are, so we come to church and say, I thank God I'm not like David over here, but rather to teach us to confess rightly our sin. Because the renewal of faith comes through the ongoing reception of our Lord's forgiveness. His forgiveness is constant for us, but we need to hear and receive it. His love is constant for us in Christ, but we need to hear and receive it. The analogy to this is you may love your wife, and that may be constant, but she needs to hear it. She needs to receive it because it increases her love and her trust in you. So also for us as Christians, it's not that God stops forgiving and, you know, our sins build up and then they go down to zero and then they build up and then they go down to zero. No, no, no. But because of the problems of life, the weaknesses of our flesh, we can doubt the Lord's love. Our conscience can be troubled. So confession and then absolution is given us so that in the absolution we might be comforted and our faith might be strengthened. Okay, so under the ninth commandment here on page 65, the first statement says, my God has given me everything that I need and all that is good for me. Therefore, there's no need to covet, is there? But of course, covet we do because of our sinful nature. And so these questions are intended to expose the covetousness. Have I longed for the honor, the wealth, the happy life, or what seemed the ease of the lives of others? Boy, I wish, I wish I had the life of John Bruss, man. The kind of house that he lives in. The kinds of extravagant vacations and cruises that he takes. Is he taking you on one of those yet, Marty? Okay. Has my life been full of craving for these things? Another set of questions. Have I been stingy and self-indulgent with my money? Which may involve trying to keep up with others. Competition. One of the things about stinginess and self-indulgence is that it never really satisfies. As I've said before, for us as Christians, the greatest satisfaction comes not in holding on, but in letting go giving of ourselves, which may include our money and possessions in the help and service of others. Next question. Have I tried by claims of various rights 
to make the property of others my own, saying they don't really deserve it, and I do. Now, since our reading today had to do with an inheritance, what is one of the things that causes great strife in families? June, you've experienced uh, that as you've observed uh, family warfares outside of your uh, immediate family, right? You know, and they, they'll kill each other over the money, over the inheritance, over the property. And they'll be embittered against each other for the rest of their lives. What a sad, sad thing. Do I have to keep wishing for and dreaming about things I don't have before I can work with a diligent and glad heart? Have I lived in a grudge, in grudging discontent, that's, you know, envy, with whatever God has given me, restless about what I do not have and neglecting thankful generosity with what I do have? These questions were um, in Lutheran catechesis are a recasting of questions from my teacher, Dr. Kenneth Corby. So each commandment has that set of questions, and I would encourage you to, um, you know, make use of it. It, it. It's a great thing to do in form of preparation. Even if you come to service early and you sit there for a moment before the opening hymn and you meditate upon God's law toward confessing, God be merciful to me. A sinner. The next thing, now these are available in one collection, uh, the Catechism Prayer Book, and you may be, you may have observed that in the congregation at prayer, whatever the catechism is for the week, there are often prayers based on that. They're all uh, published in this little booklet, and they're available on the counter outside of my office, and they're free for the taking. They put them all together. But here, the ninth commandment, which we just had this, how Christians should be taught to confess. There are two prayers. Now, I'm going to recite for you the ninth commandment and its explanation. And then I'm going to share each of these prayers. So the ninth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. We should fear and love God so that we do not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house or get it in a way which only appears right, but help and be of service to him in keeping it. Now this short prayer takes that from the catechism and turns it into a prayer. Gracious Lord, forgive us for coveting things you have not given us, and strengthen our faith in Jesus so that we do not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house, recognize the language there, or get it in a way which only appears right, but help and be of service to him in keeping it, in Jesus' name. So that's a simple prayer that takes, you know, you learn what the ninth commandment means, then you pray to God for his grace to be able to do that which, you want to know what good works are? These are good works. Not to save ourselves by them, we can't, but to serve our neighbor. And this is an emphasis that we'll continue to make, that we as Lutherans are not against good works, but the good works that God has given us to do, the Ten Commandments give us a ton, are for the service of our neighbor in love, not for ourselves. Okay? Now, the longer prayer in here uh, develops things that Luther suggested when praying 
Bible verses or the Ten Commandments or the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. You can pray speaking back to God what it is that he teaches us in, in this case, in the Ninth Commandment. You can, secondly, give thanks for this teaching because God's teaching is always good. Even if it accuses us of sin, that's good because if we didn't know our sin, we wouldn't know our Savior. So what is, what is he teaching us in this commandment? An occasion for thanksgiving. Third, he says, treat it as a confession of sins, an opportunity to confess your sins. And then finally, as an opportunity to make a petition, a request to God. So notice how some of these themes are in the ninth commandment, longer prayer. Most merciful God and Father, you teach us in the ninth commandment that we should not make an idol out of the things that belong to others, but that we should help and be of service to our neighbor in keeping what belongs to him. You notice, speaking back to God what he teaches us. You have called us in love to look out for and protect all the temporal gifts that belong to others. Now comes a confession of sins. For Jesus' sake, forgive us for every form of covetous desire and envy, for insisting upon having things that you have not given us, for being preoccupied with finding ways to get more and more for ourselves, and for making plans to obtain things from others by claiming that we have a right to them and they do not. And now the petition. So you've asked, confessed and asked for forgiveness. Now the petition. Guard the thoughts and desires of our hearts. Rescue us from every form of greed and selfishness. Teach us to love our neighbor by being of service to him and protecting what you have given him. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So every commandment in here has two prayers, a short and a long one, that teaches you how to make use of these. And this follows the theme that has uh, troubled me since uh, the late 1980s, and that is where people see the catechism as a textbook to be used for confirmation instruction for a couple of years and then put it away. Instead, Luther wanted it to be a prayer book and a handbook for the Christian faith and life. That's why we encourage everybody to learn by heart the words of the catechism. It's why it's in the congregation at prayer every week. Just focused on that little section. You know, we've been on the second article last week and this week. If you actually spend a little time with it each day, maybe at your advanced age, Wally, you know, you may not necessarily memorize it as well as a little, you know, as Talitha, but uh, it will have a transformative effect. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, well, they teach us that they're honest because they, on the basis of God's word, the honest reflection upon ourselves, which this man didn't have, the rich young man, he was not honest with himself. He was sincere, but he really wasn't honest. And that's why Jesus loved him and said, look, you lack one thing, me, let go of everything else, follow me. And that really, really cut to the chase, didn't it? All right. Finally, if you'll turn to page 61 in conclusion here, and I want to just show you a couple of things that we are going to um, continue to highlight throughout. When it comes to the liturgy, the way in which we worship, 
especially as confessional Lutherans, is according to patterns that go all the way back to the time of the apostles. And so, step back from the divine service and understand first and foremost that the man whom the rich man was called to follow, namely Jesus, who is the Son of God, is the object of our worship when we come to divine service. He's not only our focus, the object of our worship, but he is actually here. And it is the Lord Jesus who is preaching. It is the Lord Jesus who is giving us to eat of his body and to drink of his blood. So you step back from the divine service. Divine means God's. So it's God's service. He's coming to us. So if I could tell you, you know, should I ask, you know, how many of you have gone to a Trump rally? You know, if you're excited to do that. Again, some of you might say, I've never gone, you know. But uh, this causes great excitement for some. But what if I were to tell you there is a place where you might be able to meet Donald Trump, but I can tell you a place where you can meet Jesus. I mean, wouldn't that even be greater? And there is here where his word is preached, where his sacraments are administered. That's why it's the, the divine service is the Lord's preaching and the Lord's supper. The two circles on that page indicate what historically has been the focal point when the church, the company of the baptized, gather together. And what has been the focal point is the gospel reading, like today from Mark 10. That's why on Sunday morning when you come to the divine service, we stand, we sing, Alleluia! Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Or a proper Alleluia verse for the day that maybe ties in. The, congregate, the choir might sing it or we might join in with them. Alleluia, that's in anticipation of the gospel. It's like, hallelujah, Trump is here. No, hallelujah, Jesus is here. And we want to hear his words and his works. And so we stand. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the 10th chapter, glory to you, O Lord. And at the end of the reading of the gospel, this is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. See? And then the pastor in that triangle there in the sermon preaches from the gospel for the day, the words and works of Jesus, and that leads us, notice the arrow points to the words of institution, which you will hear in a moment from the altar, and this is pure gospel where Jesus says, this is my body which is given for you. This is my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Notice how that corresponds so well with our reading from Mark 10. Follow me. And so we come here because we follow him, and now he feeds us with his very body and gives us to drink of his very blood for forgiveness, life, salvation, the strengthening of our faith in Christ, and the sacrament strengthens us to love others. And so we need the food and drink of the Lord's word and sacrament of his body and blood. And the first canticle that we sing historically as we enter into the divine service is the Kyrie, which is a Greek word that means Lord, Kyrie. Kyrie eleison, the rest of the Greek is have mercy upon us. So Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy upon us. 
Christe liaison, Christ have mercy upon us. Kyrie liaison, Lord have mercy upon us. That Kyrie, Lord have mercy, captures the essence of the Christian faith. We are beggars, totally dependent upon the mercy of God in Christ for everything. For forgiveness of sins, but also for daily bread, for food, for clothing, for health. And so we pray in the midst of a worldwide pandemic, Lord, have mercy upon us and the whole world. Take away this scourge. Lord, have mercy upon us. Teach us to give, like the church, the one thing needful. You can't find the gospel and the hope of the resurrection anywhere else but here. Okay. So that Kyrie, that canticle, and we have it in various forms, the one in divine service, too, that we're using. In peace, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy, and so forth. Wally. The divine service was not just a self-authenticating thing a denomination did, but it was found by the apostles all over the communion without any formal instruction. Yes, this is true. This structure, that's why I want you to step back and see the deep structure. It was... It, it, was, it's, it was everywhere. It's how they did it. The Lord's word that led to the Lord's supper. The Lord's preaching that led to the Lord's supper. Now, it's become more ornate over the years as each generation of the church has contributed something. But we will highlight in the look at the divine liturgy the other canticles. Where did they come from and their significance? And it's a way in which we're anchored to the faith of our forefathers going all the way back to the apostles themselves. All right. Uh, next week, we will turn to the next part of the catechism, the creed, uh, with a discussion of creation. Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor sinful being. 
Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we acknowledge your great goodness toward us and praise you for the mercy and grace that our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, and our hearts have known in the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We sincerely repent of our sins, pardon our offenses, correct and reform what is lacking in us, Help us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to take up our cross and to follow him who alone is good and righteous. Inscribe your law upon our hearts. Equip us to serve you with holy and blameless lives. May each day remind us of the coming of the night when no one can work. In the emptiness of this present age, Keep us united by a living faith through the power of your Holy Spirit with him who is the resurrection and the life that we may escape the eternal pains of condemnation. By your Holy Spirit, bless the preaching of your word and the administration of your sacraments. Preserve these gifts to us and to all Christians. Guard and protect us from all dangers to body and soul. Grant that we may, with faithful perseverance, receive from you our sorrows as well as our joys, knowing that health and sickness, riches and poverty, and all things come by permission of your fatherly hand. Into your hands we commend our brothers and sisters in their physical infirmities, especially John and Petrina, Lenny, David, Jim Nietzsche, Betty Ray Weber, Sarah, Eunice Rankin, Louise Bollmeyer, Carl Stemke, Jeremy LaFore, Brian Nianabor, Roger Laubenstein, Harlan Peterson, and Allison Witte. Keep us this day under your protective care and preserve us securely trusting in your everlasting goodness and love. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and grace. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord, Holy Father, almighty and everlasting God, for the countless blessings you so freely bestow on us and all creation. Above all, we give thanks for your boundless love shown to us when you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into our flesh and laid on him our sin giving him into death that we might not die eternally. Because he is now risen from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity, 
all who believe in him will overcome sin and death and will rise again to new life. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God. Heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of all creation. For you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In your righteous judgment, you condemned the sin of Adam and Eve, who ate the forbidden fruit, and you justly barred them and all their children from the tree of life. Yet in your great mercy, you promised salvation by a second Adam, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and made his cross a life-giving tree for all who trust in him. We give you thanks for the redemption you have prepared for us through Jesus Christ. Grant us your Holy Spirit that we may faithfully eat and drink of the fruits of his cross and receive the blessings of forgiveness, life, and salvation that come to us in his body and blood. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. 
O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, grant us thy peace. Amen. Please come forward in groups of about ten. Body of Christ given for you. 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 
O oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. Almighty and everlasting God, we give thanks and praise to you for feeding us the life-giving body and blood of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Send us your Holy Spirit, that having with our mouths received the Holy Sacrament, we may by faith obtain and eternally enjoy your divine grace, the forgiveness of sins, unity with Christ, and life eternal. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.